Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Vox Media is looking for a senior designer. This is a remote position. Workday is looking for two roles, a senior UX product designer and a UX product design manager. For the senior UX product designer, they're looking for candidates in the following cities, Seattle, Beaverton, Atlanta, Boulder, San Francisco, Pleasanton, and in Victoria, British Columbia. And for the UX product design manager position, they are looking for candidates in the following cities, Seattle, Beaverton, Boulder, Pleasanton, and in Vancouver, British Columbia. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. This week, I'm talking with Liz Montague. Liz is an author and illustrator located in New Jersey and the creator of the comic Liz at Large. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Liz Montague, and I'm an author, illustrator, and cartoonist. Now, before we get more into learning about your work and about your journey as a author, illustrator, cartoonist, like, tell me, how has this year been going for you so far? This has actually been a really good year. I mean, I think personally, it's been a really good year. I just got married. I just bought a house. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. In a personal, like, and material way, I guess it's been super good. I mean, professionally, it's been really good, too. It's been my first year working on book projects, which is, like, very new for me, having come from, like, the news media world. It was a very tumultuous past few years for everybody, and, like, being on the news side of that was really exhausting. So I think this has been a really calm year, I'd say. Nice. I mean, I guess as calm as getting married and also moving into a new house. I'd imagine there's probably been some stress around that, even just with the pandemic and everything. I mean, it's less stressful than like covering the Trump presidency and 2020 COVID, all of that, and trying to do it in record time with deadlines and everything. That was way more stressful than this. A hundred percent. Fair. I get that. (laughs) Totally. I totally do. What lessons did you learn over this past year? Like, how would you say you've grown and improved? I would say that I prioritize just like my mental health. I feel like everyone's saying that and that it's kind of people say it so much it starts to not mean anything. This is like the first year I really started saying no to things. 
And then that's been like kind of scary, but empowering, but like also terrifying. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm still learning. Well, I mean, I think that's something that a lot of people are still learning is to say no. I think the pandemic, of course, forced everyone to not just slow down, but in many cases to just stop. And now that we're at this point, though we're not completely out of the pandemic, we're at this point where restrictions are being lifted and rates have gone down to a point where we now have to try to come out of this period with some new normal. And what this time has forced everyone to do is just sort of reevaluate their commitment to work, their commitment to being busy and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And like the pandemic and the pause that it caused happened at such like a weird time in my life where I was 24 and I had already been working at the New Yorker for like two years and had been doing this work for about two years. And now like where we're at now, I'm 26 and I'm trying to really figure out like, holy crap, like what do I want to be when I grow up? And I didn't expect that question to scare me so much. Well, you know, well, I mean, in in your twenties, it's, it is a scary thing, especially God, I'm thinking even now, with everything that's happening right now, it can be hard to think about what does a future look like? I totally understand that. Yeah, that's where I'm at right now. It's just like, okay, so like, done. what do I want to keep doing? What new things do I want to do? What do I want to try? Is there still time to try things and be like, bad at them and new at them? Or am I at a point where I'm just supposed to try things and automatically be good? Because that's what people might expect. I'll say with you being in your 20s, you totally have the time to try and fail at stuff. Like the 20s are for that. The 20s are like your time to do that. Your 30s are sort of your time to sort of refine the process. And then hopefully by your 40s, you you have it figured out. I'm saying this now because <laughs> I just turned 41 recently. But like you hope to have it figured out by that point. But <laughs> I can that's definitely say in, in hindsight, in your 20s, that's the time to like, I don't want to say make those mistakes, but that's the time where you can sort of have those errors and it doesn't affect you long term into the future, that kind of thing. Everything feels like, you know, you're one wrong move away from yeah. like crumbling at all. But I know that that's not actually true. Yeah. Even if it feels like it's true. <laughs> Let's go ahead and jump into Liz at Large. For those listening who, for some reason, have never heard of Liz at Large, can you give an introduction? Liz at Large is a single panel cartoon series that I actually started my sophomore year of college. I was just trying to sort out my own mind to myself. And I just kind of started drawing these cartoons where my dog, my childhood dog, Timmy, would give me advice. And it just started as like a super casual thing that I would post on Instagram. And my teammates, because I was on the track and field team in college, would be like, oh, my God, I love that cartoon. Like, where's the next one? And they would really kind of just like hold me accountable to just keep doing it. And I just really just stuck with it. And then eventually, like after I was out of college, I was working as a graphic designer. I was already working for the New Yorker at the time. I was able to make it into a single panel cartoon into the Washington City paper, which was a lot of fun. But then it's like, it's a different ball game once you have like deadlines and you need to worry about, well, how is this going to print? And the kind of evergreen nature that it needed to be because when the deadline is versus when it would print was like two weeks apart. Mm-hmm. So it's really kind of grown and shifted with me, which is kind of cool to like have that to look back on and know like where I was mentally when I made it. So, yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, have there been new changes and things that you have, have introduced to the comic as your life has gone on? I, stylistically, it's changed a bit where 
I think it got a little bit more fluid as time went on. I think when I look at the old versions of it and old cartoons of it, it feels very rigid. Like I was really afraid of messing up. And then as time went on, I think it got a little bit looser. I think I was willing to kind of play around with environments more. And then it changed even more once it was in the Washington City paper, because then it's like, okay, there's a deadline. Okay, like there's an audience that's actually like going to see this as opposed to the internet is kind of like a black hole. You're kind of sort of thinking of an audience, but you're not really thinking about like, oh, wow, someone's going to like tangibly hold this in their hand. And that tangibility kind of made me a bit more nervous. And then I think that the content of it kind of had to zoom out a lot more again, because it's like there was that two week period versus when it was due and when it would print for a daily local newspaper. You don't know what could be going on in the world at that time. And Mm -hmm. then what ended up going on in the world at that time was the Trump presidency and eventually COVID. And we were in the middle of Washington, D.C. So it was big news there. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm thinking during that time, I can imagine everything during that time was about voting the presidency. Yeah, I could see in DC how that would be really... Well, I'm curious, like, knowing that that stuff was going on as you were doing the comic, did you sort of feel a need to, like, speak to the times in that sort of way? I mean, it was almost impossible for me to be super responsive in the way that I would be for, like, a New Yorker daily cartoon or something, just because there was... I knew, like, okay, by the time that this is actually printed a week or two from now, you know, there could be a whole new thing. There could be a whole new something else going on. I actually ended up zooming in to my own life and making it hyper specific to whatever I needed to hear. Mm. And then just hoping that it would work out for whenever it was printed. I think that's probably a really good strategy too. I mean, to just make it more focused on you. I mean, it is called Liz at large. It's not world at large. So it makes sense to, (laughs) to focus it on you and your life you know, as opposed to trying to, you know, make it some sort of regular bulletin about what's happening in the world. There was already enough of that. And I was like, you know what, this, this isn't for that. So I'm gonna yeah. just do it. <laughs> yeah. To that end, like, what was the feeling that you wanted to really capture with Liz at large? When I first started, it was really just for fun, just to see what my friends would say, what I would say. But I think as I continued doing it, I realized that the power that emotional literacy could have of just like taking a second to stop and think and think about how you feel, think about what you need to hear, what I needed to hear and taking the time to write that down. And that like, that could actually have like a profound effect on your life. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of really became like a big why for me, as far as just like emotional literacy matters, the way that, especially in like, it's always weird to speak on behalf of the black community, but it's like, how in the Black community, emotional literacy, talking about your feelings, addressing your feelings, is kind of just an issue that really needs to be sorted out. And how it could just make everything so much better if we just like stopped and felt and processed. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, just like the, the impact that that could have. Yeah, I think, I think that think made it, sense. No, it, it made sense. I think if that's something people can grasp from the comic, particularly from a single panel comic... <laughs> I think that's really powerful, you know, to that end, you know, there's so much about black people that's reflected through not just the media, but through different types of media, through cartoons, through movies, etc. And so if you're able to not only make it hyper specific to your life, but then also try to make it unique to the quote unquote black experience, which is such a varied, vast Mm -hmm. concept, like it's impossible to do that. I worked in nonprofit at the time. I was a graphic designer at a nonprofit 
when I lived in DC and I remember I read research on the racial empathy gap and about how like it's literally there's research on it about how for whatever reason like I mean not for whatever reason we know what the reasons are but white audiences have a really hard time connecting with people of different skin tones especially darker skin tones because at the time I was working for a nonprofit that was mainly geared toward and focused on brown people middle eastern people so it was just like wild to to realize that this is like empirically researched information and that the impact of it is everywhere where it is well why are there so many white leads in these cartoon shows why are there so many white leads in these regular movies and books etc and the idea that like that it's harder for white audiences to connect with I don't know, different skin tones, different genders. I mean, I think that's more on the forefront now with people talking about the recent movie Turning Red and about mm. how people felt like they couldn't, not people, there was one white man in particular who did an interview <laughs> <laughs> who said that he couldn't connect with it and it was just, I can't connect with this, da 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 And it was like, because it was about a girl going through puberty who didn't look like him. And it's like, okay, but we all watched A Bug's Life or Ratatouille and like, I'm not a rat and I was able to connect with Ratatouille, but I just totally went on a whole tangent there. I'm sorry. No, I think I'm glad you mentioned the turning red thing because I was thinking about that as you were saying that, that sort of like empathy gap, because as people of color, we are forced to kind of make that gap when we see so much media that doesn't involve us. And so when you have this one thing, particularly an animated thing geared towards children And then some grown ass white man is like, well, this doesn't represent me. Well, it probably doesn't because it's not geared towards you. It's not about you. But look how many other things out there in the world are geared towards you and about you. You know what I mean? Like, it's so weird. It's the weirdest thing, but there's like literal evidence on it. And how much can a single panel or even like, you know, whatever other cartoons in the world, how much impact can they really have? I don't know. But I was like, maybe if I put these universal feelings with a darker skinned black girl, maybe this could help someone close that gap. You know, not that it's black people's job to teach anybody how to feel, but I think that that was like part of the intent. Yeah. Walk me a bit through the process of like, creating the comic like you mentioned having to sort of have it in by these specific deadlines does that mean that you you sort of batch a bunch of comics together like how does that work oh my god it was the jankiest process ever i was still still figuring things out and working like my full-time graphic design job and like million other things and it would be like it was due every thursday and it would print two thursdays after it was due and i would have to like get done the there would have to be the social media size and then the regular size for when it would print. And I would only submit one each week. And I would sit there for, I kid you not, hours and like stare at the wall and be like, oh my God, I have no idea what to say right now. And I have a deadline and the editor's texting me. It was a mess. It was a hot mess, really. But we made it through. And you said that there was also kind of the added thing of seeing it in the paper, like, I'm sure at that point you're gaining a whole new audience outside of your friends on Instagram. Like how did people react to it when they saw this in the paper? Like, did you get a a boost in like clients or anything? Like, how did that happen? What happened? Honestly, I don't really know. (laughs) I guess I got wider reach for sure. I think that tangible media, like things that you can hold just ends up in different people's hands in a way that, you know, there's a lot of digital noise and people scroll and don't always really 
stop and look. And I think that it being something tangible in people's hands enabled them to stop and look more. But I do know that after, like, once it was in Washington City paper, I ended up getting reached out to by, like, a random blog. And they were like, oh, can we, like, you know, interview you or whatever? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then, like, did that interview. And then through that, that's how the editor from Random House founded me. And that's how I got my first book deal. So, you know, you never know what can lead to what. So the two things are probably distantly connected. (laughs) Let's kind of switch gears here a little bit. I want to kind of dig a bit more into your your origin story. Now, you mentioned, you know, living in D.C. Is that where you're from originally? No, I'm from South Jersey. Okay. All right. So being from South Jersey and, and growing up there, like, were you exposed to a lot of drawing and art as a kid? I mean, yeah, I think I was. I think I have a very, like, artsy family. Both my parents went to Pratt. Oh. My mom's an architect. My dad's an engineer. So, like, we were, I have two older sisters, and we were all, like, very exposed to that. And it was, like, super encouraged. I, and my parents had a lot of friends who had been artists or were artists, but it was always, oh, yeah, you know, Charlie can be an artist. His parents just gave him a brownstone. It was very clear who could be kind of what you think about when you think of, like, a traditional, quote-unquote, like, studio artist. Mm-hmm. And that there was definitely, like, a wealth gap in between that versus who needed to have a more desk job type artist thing architecture engineering graphic design which is what i ended up going into you know what i mean yeah so i guess knowing that growing up you were drawing and kind of having this interest in it and you said both of your parents went to pratt but you didn't go to pratt you went to the university of richmond yeah well so my parents my mom's from the south side of chicago my dad's from like brooklyn and he grew up in the projects so like they didn't have traditional four-year college experiences like my dad went to junior college first and then went to Pratt on a basketball scholarship my mom Mm. started out at Hampton and then like eventually made her way to New York over like finished her degree over like a decade so for me they were just kind of like well you run track and your older sister ran track and she got a scholarship so you're gonna get a scholarship too and I was just kind of like okay (laughs) and University of Richmond just happened to be where I got my athletic scholarship. Okay. That's why I went there. There's actually a, no, I was going to say there's actually a pretty strong, like Hampton university to pipeline. I want to say I I probably had about, I know I've had at least three guests on the show where that's been the case. Yeah. It's a pretty strong pipeline. Um, I don't know if a lot of people know that, that it's like from HBCU to design school in that way. Tell me about your time at university of Richmond. Like how was that experience? I flipped around majors a lot. I went into college knowing that like I liked to draw, but not really, even with parents who went to Pratt and like were in the arts, I did had no intention whatsoever of like even studying art, minoring it, anything. I was like, I'm going to get a business degree. And that (laughs) totally didn't work out. I hated it so much. I tried to do computer science, anthropology, English, and none of it, none of it worked. And then it was like, towards the end of my sophomore year and my academic advisor was like, listen, you need to pick a major or like you might not graduate on time. And my scholarship was for four years and I was determined to graduate in four years. And then I was like, okay, just put down studio art. And that's, and that's how it happened. I know that's not the best story, <laughs> but it's the truth. So, How was the, the program there? It was really intimate, which I think I needed, especially at that time. Like, there were more faculty than than like students in the major. 
it's a very, very small school. I think University of Richmond has like 3,000 students, which is smaller than my high school. I went to like a really huge, like rural New Jersey high school that had thousands of kids. And our senior year, my senior year, there were five majors. We were all women and we had like six professors. So we were like outnumbered by our professors and it just allowed you to have a really one-on-one experience. There was room to just like try things and figure things out. And you were, we were given a lot of freedom, which Mm -hmm. I really appreciated. It helped to really just kind of like be self-motivated and not rely on like, okay, well, here's a syllabus, do this, this, and this. You're really able to kind of carve your own path, if that makes sense. No, it does. I was going to say, I imagine that's really like super empowering to have not only that kind of intimate class, you know, kind of setting and makeup, but then you're being able to kind of work closer with your professors, with people like that. Because I've had folks on the show before that have went to larger schools or went to like art schools and stuff. And that kind of one-to-one, you know, kind of relationship is tough to get. Yeah. And I knew, I knew that it was definitely like, I kind of lucked out. Now something, you know, pretty cool happened and you've kind of alluded to it a bit earlier in the interview, but something pretty cool happened around your senior year with the New Yorker magazine. Like, tell me about that. (laughs) Yeah, I was like a a super brand new 22, felt very old and mature, Um, (laughs) (laughs) had just like heard back from a graphic design job, was super pumped, was like, I'm moving to DC. I'm about to be such a grown up. And then was like at the office or something. I don't even know what. And was supposed to be working, fully supposed to be not on my phone, but I was. And I was on Instagram scrolling through. And on like my explore page or something, the New Yorker cartoons page came up. And I was just scrolling through it. And I was like, oh, wow. Like all of these cartoons are white. Like every single character in these are white. It's all kind of the same perspective over and over again. Like, I wonder if they know. At the time, my headspace was in brand new, about to start at a nonprofit job in DC, where like, I've just been trained on all of these, you know, unknown biases that people have and corporate structures and yada, yada, yada. So in my mind, I was like, oh, they just must not know that they're using all white characters. Like, let me just tell them they have no idea. And so I just like hit the email button and was like, hey, guys, don't know if you're aware, but all of your (laughs) cartoons are, are white. (laughs) <laughs> um, you guys should do something about that. Best of luck. And that was really it. And I did not expect to hear anything back. And then I got an email back and they were like, oh, it was Emma Allen, who's the editor there. She was like, oh, yeah, we're aware. Da, 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 da. Is there anyone that you would recommend? And I was like, oh, yeah, me. Yeah, I draw cartoons. <laughs> like, literally, I had no idea what I was getting myself into at all. But I mean, you shot though. I saw an opportunity and I took it. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a window and I, I ran through that thing. <laughs> Look, one of my favorite sayings is fortune favors the bold. And I mean, you saw an opportunity, you went for it. And so after you did that, like after you pitched yourself and said that, like, did they reach out to you and say, let's see what you got? Like what happened? Basically, it was like, okay, we'll send us something. And then like, I think I went that night was like trying to cobble together some sketches. And it was 50 sketches before I got like one yes. Once I got one, I was like, okay, so this is what they're looking for. And then that's, you get two and then three and then four. And then like you're able to start contributing regularly. But like there was definitely like a very steep learning curve. Cause I remember when I first told my dad, oh, like I'm ha- gonna have a cartoon in the New Yorker. He was like, what's the New Yorker? 
Like, oh. <laughs> that was not, and he's from New York, but he's not from that New York. Gotcha. So it's just like, like my frame of reference for the New Yorker was their Instagram account. I had no frame of reference for a physical magazine for the New Yorker brand. But I think that that was kind of like a really big advantage to come from the outside. Cause I think that a common problem that they have or a common thing that happens with people who submit is that they're trying to like emulate the New Yorker voice. Mm-hmm. But I had no idea that there was a New Yorker voice. Yeah. So. I mean, and also like when I think, I mean, I'm in Atlanta, so I don't know. I mean, I know of the New Yorker, but when I think of that magazine, just like in my mind's eye, I'm thinking it's a maybe more upper middle class audience white audience that mostly would be paying attention to or reading the New Yorker. But then like, it's also online. And I I look at a ton of stuff from the New Yorker online. So even in it's just design stylings, I feel like that's who it's trying to sort of cater itself towards. So when you said you had to try to find like what that voice was, was it about trying to tailor yourself to that audience or more so tailoring yourself to what just the editor wanted at the New Yorker? I mean, I think probably a little of both because like this was my first professional art job ever, kind of straight into the fire, so to speak, where Mm -hmm. I didn't have any concept of, oh, like this is the deadline. And if it's not in by the deadline, like it's not going to print. And of like, oh, these are finals and you're going to keep doing it until it's right. And of atmosphere and what skin tones can print and what skin tones can't print. And will it, you know, smudge into the black line so then like you won't be able to read facial expressions there's such a learning curve there in general and then on top of that and i talked really openly with my editor emma about that at the time about well black humor isn't going to be funny to people who read the new yorkers and like i remember i said that to her point mm-hmm. blank like via email i tr- I talked to her about that where it was just what i might find culturally funny might not be able to be in this magazine because of the voice and the audience that you're targeting so like where does that leave me if what I'm, you know, because of cultural things, because of societal things, I find funny, but like, can't be published here. Like, what am I, am I supposed to like, I don't know, put myself in the shoes of if I were like, middle class and white. So that was a huge barrier. But I figured it out. I mean, I got, I got some zingers in there. I definitely got some zingers in there. <laughs> I would imagine once people discovered that you were the first black woman cartoonist in the New Yorker, that probably also expanded who read The New Yorker. I mean, I would get DMs like that where it's like, oh, I read The New Yorker now because of you. And I'm like, oh, God, like $12 a magazine. Like, please, yourself. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's so, it's such a weird, hard conversation to have because it's... I'm curious. Let's dig into that a little bit. What makes it weird? I think because be hard for institutions to own that conversation and then it's kind of deflected into like oh well you know maybe there was somebody else and what about this and well you know we don't really know people's racial identity and what and then it's just kind of like it's interesting how with these conversations about first and you know what's overdue whatever it's like a lot of time the conversation ends up on the individuals rather than like the institutions where it's like mm-hmm. so like why didn't you guys hire anybody in the last hundred years you know yeah. and it's like Am I at 22 or at the time at 22 equipped to have that conversation equipped to really, you know, navigate the waters of this and navigate other people's identities, navigate the commodification of my own identity. Like, 
am I really, that's, it's a minefield. And I think that especially right now where we're at at a society, it's just like, whatever you share is then like up for sale and you have to be willing to like be branded as not just branded, but then speak on behalf of that entire community and then Mm. like have it challenged. And, and then especially it's not, especially for the New Yorker audience, which was used to a very specific kind of perspective and thing. And then to have me not offer that very specific thing, like people didn't take it very well. Sometimes like I got some wild emails. Yeah. Like I think that there's one cartoon I have where it's, the girl's hair like bit off someone's hand like they don't sell it on the Condé Nast store it's the only <laughs> cartoon of mine that they don't sell on the Condé Nast store oh it's just weird did I answer that well no I think you did because as you sort of said that what sort of becomes apparent to me hopefully to the listener is like there's this layer of activism that ends up getting added to your work that you not only didn't ask for or volunteer for but you didn't include in the original work yeah no, but I mean, like your cartoons, like you said, like the they're about, you know, kind of slice of life sorts of things. You didn't intend to layer some deep social message or anything into it, but that's how people are perceiving it based on your identity. Yeah. I mean, especially, I don't know, it's like everybody who's from a marginalized group is forced into the role of activist. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, especially having like lived in D.C., I'm first generation suburban. Nobody else in my family grew up in the suburbs. Like the people are fighting a good fight, but like <laughs> that's such a thing to just like put on somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just hard thing to navigate because then it's like you don't get a rest ever. And I think that that's kind of what I realized, especially towards the end of 2020, like with everything going on with the police and with George Floyd and everything, like where I was just like, man, I'm tired. Like yeah. I was just so tired and drained. And like, that was like the last cartoon I did for the New Yorker where it was like, I think the text was, oh, my white friends think racism is new or something like that. Mm-hmm. It just makes you tired. Yeah. I know the feeling. I totally know that feeling. Prior to doing this podcast, when I was, when did I start the Black Web? I was 20, I think I was 24, 23 or 24 I started this event online called the Black Weblog Awards. And this was back in 2004, 2005, really kind of pre-social media, definitely pre-Twitter, but like pre-social media, Facebook, I think, was just starting to transition out of being only for college students and opening it up to everyone in the world, essentially. And what I wanted to do, because I was an active blogger at the time myself, what I wanted to do was make this event that would celebrate black bloggers that I knew of that were doing great things because I saw that there were other like blog awards out there. There was, there were two that were both called the weblog awards, although one kind of shortened their name to the bloggies or whatever. And what I saw when, with the winners is like, well, all the winners are white. And I know that there's like people of color that are out here blogging, particularly black people. And what got me was one of the awards had a category that was like best African or Middle Eastern blog. And all of the nominees were white and the winner was white. And I'm like, you mean to tell me out of the entire huge continent of Africa and the probably similarly huge section of the Middle East, only white people? I find that 
very hard to believe. And so I started the Black Weblog Awards sort of in opposition, but also to celebrate the community that I knew about, that I was, you know, kind of a part of. And when I sort of talked about that that layer of activism that gets added onto there, I called like just calling it the Black Weblog Awards invited so much criticism and unnecessary hate. And I mean, and this is again, this is pre-Obama. So like this is <laughs> this, this is at a time in the world, you know, it's like post 9-11, pre-Obama, where black and brown people really not really favored that well in terms of the media and such. But I did that for seven years, ended up selling it to a friend of mine. And I mean, even as the years went on with it, it was amazing how the reception to the event changed as society changed. Mm -hmm. So like around 2007, 2008, Obama's running for president and such comments I kept getting back about the Black Weblog Awards is, well, I mean, we're post-racial now. <laughs> why why does it have to be the Black Weblog Awards? Why can't it just be the Weblog Awards? And I'm like, well, two of those already exist. And I'm only doing this for Black people. So it is the Black Weblog Awards. But like as society changed and the way that people perceived the work that I did changed. I even experienced that with Revision Path when I did in 2015, I did a a talk at South by Southwest in Austin called Where Are the Black Designers? And I was about two years into doing Revision Path, managed to land at South by Southwest with a speaker proposal, did a speech to a room of maybe about, the room sat close to 500 people. There may have been 15 or 20 people in there. Ooh, like, <laughs> like, like nobody was there. People were charging their phones. People were asleep in the back. Like nobody was really paying attention. And I gave this talk and there were like a handful of folks there, you know, like, good job, that sort of thing. When I tell you that presentation didn't pick up traction until five years later, during the summer of, of unrest, when we heard about what happened with George Floyd at the Minneapolis Police Department, then it started to pick up steam and like, people were like, oh, well, this is so great. This is so wonderful. We're trying to center black voices. We want to know about this presentation. And in my mind, I'm like, this is five years old. But the way that people are perceiving it now has changed because the culture has changed. Like I said, there is this like layer of activism that gets added to the work that like I didn't necessarily put it there, but you're attaching it onto it based on your societal values or what's happening in the world and how you think you should feel about it because it exists. You're, you just said a word. <laughs> you just said a word. But it's it's a lot. And I mean, I, I can imagine, you know, I mean, I was going to ask this question a little bit later, but like, you know, the whole thing about representation, you know, we've seen this influx of black artists and talent with cartoons and animation and fine art and such like one, like you see all these new black shows and stuff. A lot of those black shows also have fine art in there from black fine artists. Now, you never hear about those artists. That's a whole other conversation. But it's so interesting how all of these things and all these shows and movies and such, and they're in these different genres, but they all kind of have this layer slash burden of having to represent for the community. Like, do you feel like you have to do that through your work now? When I first started, I definitely did. I definitely felt like a lot of pressure. I mean, especially like based on where I'm from. So I'm from rural South Jersey. 
there is like a, a soybean farm behind my childhood house. Uh-huh. Like, so very, very rural, very white. And I just remember like what we would be told is like, you know, the few black people in town was like, you know, every person's, every white person's opinion of a black person is going to be formed based on how you act. So you better, you know, act right. Mm. Or else, you know, you're, you're damning every other black person they're going to meet. And so like, that was kind of the framework that I had. And I think that I just kept feeling like, I don't want to mess this up for anybody else. Like in the cartooning world at the New Yorker, like, I don't know, in the spaces that like, I felt that I was, you know, at, I just didn't want to mess it up for anyone else. So I wanted to make sure that I was, you know, saying yes to everything and super, you know, amenable and like, oh, no worries. It's fine. It's okay if you don't have the budget for it. Just very overly accommodating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and then I just got sick of it. (laughs) And I was just like, you know what? This isn't sustainable. It's just not sustainable. But I think that also as as I got older, just like maturity wise, I just realized like the only person I can control is me. Like I can't control how I'm interpreted. I can't control another person's actions to like a fictional future person who may or may not exist. I need to just just live as a single human being in this moment and not as every possible iteration of black person that this person could interact with. Yeah. I think I was doing that for a while. Well, I mean, also I think whenever you're doing work that has such a, a large kind of public footprint and uh, I feel like actors probably do this a lot. Like you learn eventually what strategies you have to kind of, I guess cope is the best way to put it, but like you, you don't read the comments, you don't read the reviews, mm-hmm. you just do the work and just keep moving on. I don't know. I think I didn't want to like not be what everyone expected me to be and then miss out on opportunities too. Like, cause mm-hmm. it was just, especially early 2020, like when the pandemic was starting, like it was like all the stuff came out of nowhere. And I was, I felt really conflicted about it. Cause I was like, God, like, am I sitting off of all of this terrible stuff happening, you know, to the black community? Am I benefiting off of the George Floyd shootings, all of the shootings that happened to black people that aren't, you know, talked about and like just this collective white guilt that's happening right now, like where, you know, all of a sudden I'm getting to do stuff for, you know, food network and the Obama foundation. I worked on a Biden presidential commercial. Like I did a Google doodle. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like my mom was just kind of like, Oh, just take it. (laughs) <laughs> just, be, just be happy and i was like you don't understand yeah what are the ethics behind this yeah i mean your mom's right just take it like <laughs> <laughs> like, like, take like it. if the opportunity comes just take it i mean there's a there are a lot of us that did have a bit of a come up during that time and i think that's kind of a bit of the secret shame around it i, would, I guess you could call mm-hmm. it shame i don't know but the fact that now people are paying attention to the work that we do, but that it had to come at a time of like such civil unrest at the death of an innocent person, like that it had to come to that in order for us to be recognized. And like, there's some people I've talked to about it and they've said to me, like, is this what it's like for white people all the time? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Is it? I mean, that, that would be interesting if that's the case, but it is this sort of weird tension. Like you're being recognized because you know, like, you know, the hard work that you've done to get to this point. And yes, you're being recognized, but the fact that you're being recognized because of all this injustice and inequity and other things that are happening in the world, it's sort of, it's, I don't know. It is a very weird feeling, but at the end of the day, take the work. 
Like, yeah. take the work, get the check. There's no ethical consumption under capitalism, blah, 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 blah. Like, take the work. <laughs> So I, I, your mom's right in that aspect. Absolutely. But I get where, I get where you're coming from too. Cause I certainly, like I had an influx of speaking gigs and a whole bunch of stuff like that. Cause I got fired from my job. They cut my whole department right before the summer of 2020. And so for all of this to happen, it's like, Oh, well, at least I'll be able to eat for a few more months. But it does, it does sort of come with this like psychic weight of. Yeah, but all this other like horrible stuff in the world had to happen. Mm-hmm. And it was during a global pandemic, but yeah. I'll I'll take it, you know? Like that's, there's one thing black folks gonna do is make a way out of no way. So <laughs> yeah, that's just that's just sure. take it. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. So now you're a you're a full time cartoonist. You mentioned working at the at uh this nonprofit for a while after you graduated. Like what do your work days look like now? Right now, I just finished my first book, my graphic novel, Maybe an Artist. It's available for pre-order. That's with Penguin Random House. So that's just finished. And that was taking up literally like all of my time up until like a month ago, maybe. And now I'm working on a picture book for also for Random House. And I also have a three book deal with Scholastic for a three book YA series. So my days are pretty much like split between those two projects with like a series group together where I'm one of those crazy people who wake up really early and like run. I don't know. I like being out in the sun. So Mm. my days start with me waking up, going for a run. I usually do like some kind of hit class or something. My husband makes me a coffee. Try not to check my phone or my email because if I do, I'll get sucked in and then I'll just be like on my phone and suddenly it's three o'clock. I actually try to get done all, I do a to-do list of like everything that needs to get done look at you know chapter one or finish sketches the ending or beginning of whatever so i'll do those early in the morning when i like can rely on my focus because as soon as it's lunchtime like all bets are off i pretty much do that to lunch and then in the late afternoon do emails and then whatever else is left on the to-do list that's pretty much my day wow. i usually have like the same day every day <laughs> are you still doing the liz at large comic I haven't like posted any of them. I still do them sometimes for myself. I don't know the cartooning world. There's just so much going on. And it's like, like it's very rare that I even like watch the news these days to even like, you know, I I think that like the thing with cartooning, or at least for me back when I was doing it more than I am now, it's very reactive where it's like, And it's usually very reactive to news specifically, where it's like, I'm looking at the news, I'm looking at social events, I'm looking at what's going on, and then I'm reacting to it. But these days, it's like, I don't really give myself like, um, things to react to anymore. Because I feel like I learned the hard way in like, 2020, and like, early 2021, that like, there can be a breaking point to that. Hmm. How do you kind of keep motivated and inspired with the work that you're doing? I think that right now, I kind of just want to see like, okay, let's see how far I can go. I was like, that's definitely part of it. I'm just like, okay, let's let's see when the when the wheels fall off. <laughs> like, how 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 long can I really pull this off for? That's definitely a part of it. And then the other part of it, I think, does go back to even why I started was at large, like this idea of emotional literacy and of just like seeing black characters and of like providing black characters in general and like being able to provide black characters as a black woman 
Because like you wouldn't you wouldn't believe. I mean, I'm sure you would believe the amount of like black characters and you know characters of color in general that are not made by people of color. Mm -hmm. And to be able to like, I mean, authentic is such a weird word, but like to be able to provide like a to be able to like showcase an experience that I've actually lived, I think is like something really powerful and something that I'm really proud to be able to do. So it's but I don't know. It's also like that whole idea of if not me, who like. That's a right. trap. That's a total trap. So <laughs> I think I'm still, I think my, my why is day to day. It's day to day. Look, at, at this stage, I think we're all kind of taking it day by day. So I completely understand that. I wish I had some big, like, well, you know, like a reason or something, but I think I'm just figuring this out. And, you know, at this stage of your life, that's the time to do it. That's the time to just try to figure it out. You know, like I don't, I would hope, you know, I know that you and I have sort of talked about this prior to the interview about what you want sort of people to take away from it. But like, don't be so hard on yourself, you know, Yeah. take it day by day as things happen. You know, I think, you know, certainly with what you've just described already, you are at a great place in life right now. Great, great. So (laughs) take it, take it day by day. And, and kind of just go through, go through the days and, and your feelings and work as it happens. Cause there's a, I, I, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there's a lot <laughs> of people at your age that would love to have that kind of just opportunity and work lined up. And I mean, a three book deal, a three book deal. That's major. Yeah. That's major. <laughs> a three like- book deal on top of a book you're already working on, on top of a book that's about to come out. Come on now. It's just, it's so weird though, because I feel like day to day is also so solitary. You know, like I don't have coworkers, I don't know people. So it's like, I mean, it's hard because the only people, so like, I'm, you shouldn't be comparing yourself to, you know, you shouldn't be, but everybody does it. And it's like, you end up comparing yourself to like your wildest ideals and like yeah. your, your biggest insecurities of just like, well, you should be doing more. Well, what about this? Well, what about Instagram? And then, like, that's a whole other can of worms is it's, like, the social presence, like, the social media presence mm. part of it. Yeah. Like, I feel like there's a huge pressure nowadays to have, like, this very big social media presence to, like, I don't know, exist on all platforms, be approachable at all times, be connecting at all times. I remember I texted, like, my my agent, Wendy, and was like, listen, man, like, I can't do TikTok. I, I, my, I can't do it, please. Yeah. And she was like, of course not. You don't have to. But it's like, it's crazy, though, because these days in like meetings and like for negotiations, they'll ask you your followers. Mm. And it's just like, what, what? I don't know. Yeah. It's weird to think about the longevity, the sustainability of this, of just like, of such a fast paced world where we're consuming so much so quickly, you know? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, the the way to not burn out from that is to focus on Focus on the audience and the community that you have. Like the thing with a lot of social media, you know, and I, I know this from one, just from being old and being around on the <laughs> internet forever, but like there's so much about modern social media that is about trying to attract an audience that you don't have. And I think what can end up happening with that is you end up exhausting all of these efforts and jumping through all these hoops to try to like impress people that don't know you, don't know your work, etc. The reality is, if the work is good, the people that already support you 
will kind of do some of that legwork for you. They'll tell people, they'll tell friends, they'll mention you in rooms that you're not in. So you don't have to be on all the things all the time. Like I could, I think probably for a visual media or a visual artist, like you are, you know, being an illustrator and a a cartoonist, like being on Instagram does make sense because it is a visual medium. Mm -hmm. TikTok is like the wild, (laughs) wild west. It really is. And I mean, aside from just the, the ever like changing and shifting algorithm of the platform, it's also like super toxic. And I know art, like I've, I've, I've seen artists on TikTok that I've had on the show. So like, I know that it is helpful to kind of get the word out to people, but then it also exposes you to so many just like idiots that don't get it. And like they spend their free time trying to like instill the seeds of doubt into you so you don't do the work that people love you for. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so you don't have to be on all the things because it just spread you like you spread yourself too thin. Like mm-hmm. focus on the the audience that you have and like on the platforms that you feel you can at least control and have like some semblance of of uh of yourself on there where you don't have to like change who you are or what you do to kind of get your work out there. I feel like that's like been the hardest part lately is just being like, okay, like who I am right now, right this moment, not me 10 years from now or me three years ago, like who I am right now is like capable of doing this work and like is enough, you know, like Mm -hmm. everyone's kind of dealing with that. I feel like now we're in like a stable enough place as a country and as like, well, I mean, you know, as stable as America ever is, we're for people to reflect on like, in the thick of it for like two years and like what happened to me during those two years you know what did I lose what did I gain like am I proud of what came out on the other side of it yeah. a lot of people are dealing with that I think I'm especially dealing with that it's just like I don't know especially it's like 30s looking pretty close from from, from this side of 25 30s <laughs> looking pretty close I'm <laughs> just like Jesus like trying to figure it out you know, we don't need to figure it all out. That's not real. It's social media and everything yeah. else. I but mean, give give yourself some grace, certainly, and realize that, I mean, you know, like I said before, where you're at right now at your age is great. But I think even just, I mean, in, in whatever way you feel is, is, I think, the best way that doesn't, like, take too much out of your regular process. But, like, even just documenting where you're at in some way, I think, is is helpful for other people. So they know that, like... Again, like you said, we're all kind of figuring it out, but I think particularly for black creatives, there's this strong propaganda to like hustle hard and, you oh, know, they sure. sleep, we grind. Sure. And it's like, that is not sustainable at all. Like I get, I get these naps in every day. <laughs> exactly. Please believe it. Like, exactly. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. like I, I work smart, but like I'm, I'm sleeping over here a lot. So <laughs> like, once you sort of find what that balance is, I, I think, you know, even just documenting it, even if it's just for yourself, like not even for the public, but just so you know, like, this is how I felt as I was going through this time in life, as I was trying to figure these things out, I think is super helpful. I mean, I feel like even just talking about like, as black creatives or black artists or whatever, like what's attainable, I didn't really think that it was like possible to like, be your own boss for real or like have like stability. Does that make sense? Or no, like, that makes sense. Like, and I think that 
it shocked me more than anyone that like holy crap like i'm a homeowner like when did that happen How did that happen? <laughs> it's wild that like we don't even realize like what we've written off for ourselves because of like whatever paths we choose or wherever we find ourselves and i think that especially for for myself i there was a lot that i didn't think was achievable and it's like oh wow like actually this is and I think that a lot of like a lot more black artists especially need to realize that because yeah. I think that like especially the eat sleep grind culture like that as someone who lived it that burned me out so quick I was like I'm never gonna draw again I hate this now even with these these books that you are working on and everything do you have a dream project that you'd love to do one day you know what? Speaking into existence now, I would love to work with Disney. Hit me up. You know, huge Princess and the Frog fan. <laughs> Beyond that, I don't, I don't really know. Like, I think I'd like to teach somewhere down the line. Or even like now, I used to teach like really fun community art classes when I was in D.C. But then the pandemic kind of put an end to that. I think I'd like to teach. Who knows? Like I, I swear, every other week I'm tra- I'm talking myself out of going to medical school or something. I'm like, <laughs> or becoming like a pastry chef. It could be anything at this point. <laughs> I would definitely love to do something centered around Black mental health for sure, mm. and like diving into that and different ways of just like connecting. Because I know that people love to say like you know hold space and you know whatever that means, but like I think that beyond just face to face talk therapy, which you know in a perfect world would be accessible to everyone and they would be able to have black therapists who could understand where they're coming from like we need to deal with the world that we're in right now where there need to be more accessible ways of connecting beyond just this one way that is very like not accessible for most people you know and i feel like there's some kind of world where there's an art-based solution to that or at least in the world that i want to exist in where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what do you want this next chapter of your story to be? I hope in the next five years or not, not, I hope I know in the next five years, I'm going to be like spearheading a lot more projects. I feel like up until this point, I really just, people have approached me and I've said yes. Whereas with like, especially with the series of Scholastic, that was the first thing that like I pitched myself. I came up with myself and like, that was fully my idea that like, I'm going to be like taking to fruition. So Mm -hmm. more of that, more of me getting to execute my ideas instead of executing other people's ideas. I hope a lot more of that. Well, just to wrap things up here, Liz, where can our audience find out more information about you and about your work and everything online? Uh, my website is lizatlarge.org. I'm on Instagram at lizatlarge. I'm also on Twitter, but like I don't really tweet that much. It's also lizatlarge. Liz Montague, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, as I was doing my research for this interview and everything, I was like, I think I'm becoming a fan of like <laughs> you and like the work that you're doing. I mean, even the fact that you've managed to accomplish this much at a young age is phenomenal. And I'm really excited to kind of see where you go from here. I mean, I think it's one thing to have these, these accolades about, you know, first black woman cartoonist in the New Yorker, and then to have all this success, but being able to sustain that as you go forward in your career is going to be super important. And I hope that this 
this interview kind of has given you something to think about. But then also I'm excited to kind of come back to this in a few years after we see you really blow up huge and do big <laughs> things. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and like reaching out to me and just having this space in general. This is like actually so awesome. Really. I really enjoyed this. Big, big thanks to Liz Montague. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Liz and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts provided by Brevity and Wit. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? We'd love to hear from you, so please hit us up on social media. Do not be a stranger, please. We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up on Twitter or on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or on Spotify. Five stars, of course. We want five-star reviews. Uh, The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become and the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.